Ladies and gentlemen, how are you doing? Hmm. That's a rhetorical question. I can't hear your answer. I got some comedy dates coming up. Uh, JoeRogan.net forward slash tour is where you could find out about all of them. One of the big ones I got happening is on May 12th, I'm at the Verizon Wireless Theater just outside of Dallas in Grand Prairie, Texas with powerful Ian Edwards, one of the funniest comedians on the planet Earth, and Tony Hinchcliffe, the young up-and-coming golden pony. Good times. Uh, the nether one is the another one. That's not a word. Another one is July seventh. July seventh. I'm at the Ka Theater at in the MGM uh, in Vegas, and uh, that is already yeah. That's the day before the UFC. So that's it. Uh, JoeRogan.net forward slash tour for all those. Okay. We are brought to you today by Stamps.com, which is an amazing way for you to send shit through the mail without having to ever step foot in the post office again. If you send packages, you know what a gigantic pain in the ass it is to go to the post office and send them out. You have to get them weighed and measured and they have to... Each individual one has to have its little thing on it. Blah blah blah. It's a fucking pain in the dick or vajaja, but you don't have to do that. Vajaja. What am I, a baby? Sometimes I talk and I, I don't think that I'm going to say what I'm saying before I say it. I just I'm talking already and noises come out. That was the case there. Um, back to it. Going to the post office fucking sucks. Okay, the lines bullshit. <laughs> it's forever. There's a lot of other people that are sending things too. Thankfully, you don't have to do that anymore. You can create a Stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. Clink, click, print, mail, and you're done. Unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. Stamps.com allows you to print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage. And they'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. This costs less than a postage meter, and it's more flexible. Stamps.com is used by a, a host of humans that I know. Um, Brian Redband uses it all the time for Death Squad TV. All the stuff that he sells, he sends that stuff through Stamps.com. Bill Burr uses it. Burt Kreischer uses it. Tom Segura and Christina Pazitsky, when they send their stuff for your mom's house podcast, they use Stamps.com, and you can too. And right now, you can enjoy Stamps.com with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in J-R-E. That's Stamps.com, enter J-R-E. And Stamps.com allows you to have to never, or to never have to go to the post office again. So don't go to the post office. Go to Stamps.com. Bum, 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 bum. We're also brought to you by Lyft, L-Y-F-T, which is, if you know, it's uh, it's one of those apps. It's a ride-sharing company, and it's one of those apps that um, once you qualify and once you start using it, you can make money anytime you want. You just turn that sucker on, and you're good to go. If you're choosing a ride-sharing company to drive for, go with the company that treats you better, which is Lyft. Hmm. Lyft drivers... Um, can get in-app tipping, 
When you drive for Lyft, you keep 100% of the tips. Drivers have been paid over $150 million in tips since the feature was introduced. That's, that's a lot of cash. Express Pay lets drivers get paid almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks, and Lyft has taken the guesswork out of pickups. The new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. You can earn hundreds of dollars a week, plus tips. You want to make money? Just drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. It's a simple formula. Happy drivers mean happy passengers, and maybe that's why 9 out of 10 Lyft drivers get a perfect 5-star rating. Come on, folks. So join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to Lyft.com, that's L-Y-F-T dot com forward slash Rogan today, and you can get a $500 new driver bonus. That's Lyft.com forward slash Rogan. Lyft.com forward slash Rogan. Limited time only. Terms apply. And last but not least, we're brought to you by Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Mm-hmm. They proudly support us. It says it in their copy. Proudly support us. Proud supporters of the Joe Rogan experience. And when it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone that you can trust who has your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in minutes. You can even adjust the rate and the length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com forward slash Rogan. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. We're also brought to you each and every episode, this is the last one, each and every episode by Onnit.com. If you've never heard of Onnit before, if you know my podcast, you know this commercial, so I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Onnit is what we call a total human optimization company. Our goal at Onnit is to promote an ethic of self-improvement, to inspire people to go out there and do their best, and to provide you with all the information and all the tools to go do that. Uh, information through the Onnit Academy link. Go to that Onnit Academy link and click on it, and you're taken to a section of the website that has hundreds of articles on diet, on different kinds of workouts, on motivation, on strength and conditioning routines, exercise physiology, um, just awesome interviews and awesome motivational articles uh, from different people, like my friend Brian Callen. He's in there. Or uh, there's a, a, a ton of different ex- experts on all sorts of different things, from weightlifting to yoga. We also have an actual Onnit Academy, which is in Austin, Texas. It's an amazing gym, state-of-the-art facility that also has 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu and Bang Muay Thai. Um, go to Onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T, use the code word ROGAN, and you'll save 10% off of any of our amazing supplements like Alpha Brain which is something I don't leave. I literally, I don't go out of town without it because I think it's amazing to help recover from jet lag. I, I don't do podcasts without it. I don't do the UFC without it. I don't do stand-up without it. Uh, I'm a fucking dummy without it. How about that? Onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word ROGAN and save 10% off any and all supplements. Kabow! We did it. 
My guest today is my friend, Dr. Roddy McGee. Uh, I know many of you have heard me talk about the stem cells treatments that I've had in Vegas, and I got them through Dr. McGee and his company and his, uh, his clinic, rather. So without any further ado, uh, interesting podcast, fascinating. We talked about a lot of cool shit, a lot of science, um, and up to date with um, all of the latest and greatest technology and innovations and breakthroughs when it comes to um, fixing injuries and shit. So give it up for my pal, Dr. Roddy McGee. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, Dr. McGee. That sounds not me peeing. <laughs> if you're hearing that, you're like, what? Is this is this a podcast in a bathroom? No, that's coffee. How are you, buddy? Good. Thank well, you for having me. Th- thanks for being here. For uh, folks who have heard me uh, rant and rave about the fantastic results that I have had um, getting treatment on my shoulder where I was that close to getting surgery, it's this gentleman, Dr. McGee. Who has uh, who's fixed me up out of Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, now we're here to talk about it. Yeah, I appreciate the chance to be here. Well, you're a man of very short words today. He was very talkative before the podcast, folks. That's how it goes. Well, man. now I'm hearing myself. In the oh, is it headphones. weirding you out? Yeah, a you can bit. take them off. We can take them off. It's too weird. Yeah. You've never done a podcast like this before. Right? You did John Dudley's, not, yeah, not which was excellent. Type. We can take it off. I might have to. Okay, let's take it off. <laughs> I don't want to freak you out. Yeah. Is that better? This is a little more like a normal conversation. Okay. I don't want to freak you out. To me, it's yeah. better because like, I can hear like if it's, things are wrong. What's uh, what's the notes, Daddy-O? What do you got there? Uh, just a couple of things I jotted down. Just make sure uh, give you all the information you want to hear. Well, I just want to tell you that I feel super fortunate to have met you and to have been treated by you and to be able to have these conversations with you in your office, which is why I wanted to have you here to talk to you because... I mean, I was having some really significant shoulder issues before um, you treated it, and it's it's amazing the results. And what what you know, I mean, what what I've avoided avoided in shoulder surgery. Yeah, I mean, you've had a tremendous result. So uh, obviously, we're very thankful that you were able to get that benefit. And I think we're in my community of orthopedic surgery and sports medicine. You know, we're very excited about the possibility and eager to continue to learn about it and see what it can be and how it can help and what it does best for what. Now, where's all this stuff coming from? Like, where, where is this science coming from and how has it evolved over the last few years? Well, um, a lot of the stuff that we're using is not new in terms of uh, the tissue or uh, that type of thing, but it's actually the, the application for orthopedic sports medicine. So you could go back decades to when it's been used in plastic surgery, uh, for corneal ulcers is one of the original applications of placental tissue. Uh, really? so the idea of it isn't necessarily new. It's just that as we've, uh, gained more understanding in our community of orthopedic surgery, now we're starting to see what the applications can be. Now, when you say plastic surgery, like what have they done with it with plastic surgery? Mostly helping with wounds. So that's been the big application, wound healing. And the potential for there to be wound healing without scarring. So that's that's one of the things that we'll get into. How do they do that? Um, It's part of the mechanism of how the cell helps uh, the process of the healing. 
So, but we'll talk about that for sure. Now, when they extract the placental tissue, like how are they? Do, they're, they're doing it on young women who have had cesarean sections, correct? Sure. So it bypasses a lot of the ethical concerns that a lot of people had during the Bush administration, right. which well, kept them. Okay. So let's, you said a couple of different important things there. Okay. So let's start breaking that down yeah. a little bit. So the first thing is, um, you know, where does it come from? It comes from a young, healthy mother. In this case, what we're talking about, um, this particular category of biologic treatment or cellular tissue. Uh, this comes from a young, healthy mother that's having an elective C-section and prior to the delivery has agreed to make a charitable donation. And then they have been screened. And there is a process that must be followed by the American Association of Tissue Banks. And they have a series of blood tests that they have to go through. And so you're checking to be sure that there's no communicable disease, you know, for example, hepatitis or HIV, uh, things of that nature. And so once that has been cleared and they're an acceptable donor, then they go through the delivery, the tissues collected. And as you said, this is stuff that typically would go in the garbage. So um, essentially the, you know, the ethical and the, the moral dilemma shouldn't exist for that portion of it because, you know, otherwise it's just garbage. Um, now, that's taken by the company that has harvested, and they have their processing center, which also has to be uh, evaluated and approved by this AATB, American Association of Tissue Banks, uh, to be a facility that is up to their standards. So they have a sterilization process the tissue's not contaminated. Their packaging is appropriate. Their, you know, their shipping is not causing problems with the tissue. So you have to meet all these standards. It's very stringent. And so if you have that, if a company has that uh, approval, then you know they, they meet the standards allowed so that that stuff can then go either to an office or to a hospital. So now the, the next thing of what you said, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, – uh, President Bush and that whole discussion. So first of all, that is about embryonic stem cells. Okay. An embryonic stem cell, and that's, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing. Um, an embryonic stem cell is when the, the sperm and the egg join and begin to form the beginning cells of life. And there's initially two cells and then it divides into four, eight, etc. In the, the first five days of life, that's called a blastocyst. And those cells can be harvested, um, and they are what we call totipotent. That means they can become anything. They have the ability to transform into any line of tissue or organ. Or in, in the case of that first five days of life, those individual cells can actually become a complete organism. So that's, that's where we had you know, the cloning of the sheep Mm. So that's what happened. So they, they took the cells in that first couple of days, and then they Divided had a process them. to allow it to continue to grow. And, and so you had two different – from a single uh, sperm and egg, you had two organisms, complete mammals, you know, created. So when you say this blastocyst, is that how you say it? That's just the term for the initial, you know, the ball of cells that's formed. And how many cells is in a blastocyst? Well, they're dividing over the number of days and doubling each time. Right. So then, you know, Hundreds, by the time... Hundreds, thousands? Not by that time. No? no. Hundreds? You're 16, you know, 32. So if you have 32, how many different organisms can you make off of those 32 cells? 
technically, if you have a totipotent cell, every individual cell has the ability to become a complete organism. Whoa. So that could be one blastocyst could be 32 different people. I guess potentially. Wow. That, I don't know if that experiment's been carried out. But theoretically, at theoretically, least. yeah. Wow. So um, now when they have like frozen embryos and people do things like that, when they decide they want to have kids later in life and they freeze their embryos, how the hell are they doing that? What's, what's that about? <laughs> well, and I'm not like a reproduction oh, okay. specialist, so we might be getting, you know, out but of my those, region. But those frozen embryos, a lot of times they don't get used, right? I don't know. That, I don't know how that works. Um, because I know there's been battles, like people have had battles with their yeah, ex-wives and shit. I think I've read over. a little bit of stuff yeah, like that. It's very strange. I mean, the my understanding of it would be that if you're, you know, you're freezing it with the intention of maintaining the cell viability, and so somebody has demonstrated that you could then thaw that cell, and it still has the opportunity to divide, produce, and you know, become a living thing. Wow. I was thinking, like, for the non-viable ones or the ones that don't get turned into people. They could probably use those as well, right? Well, that that's a big That was debate. the thing, right? That was yeah. the big George Bush thing. Well, okay, so let's back up on that okay. because I think there's a lot of misconception about that, and I hear, like, very strange comments made about it all the time in the media. So the thing that George Bush signed in 2001 stated that the federal government was not going to supply money for embryonic stem cell research. That's it. It was not a ban on... The application on, on stem cell research. Right. So for all of that time, I mean, private equity companies and any private investor could have and probably has been spending the money to continue to research that and, and develop it and find it. So I, I always find it interesting when I hear on TV, I don't know, oh, like the, our country has been set back a decade because they signed this, you know, bill. Like, so you feel that's, that's wrong? Not, yeah, that's... So, um, but all he said was, we're not going to dedicate federal money to it. Right. That's different than a ban on any study. But how much research does rely on federal funding? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's private funding for all kinds of things. So is it more common now than it is before? Or has it always been the case where there's a lot of private funding? So President Obama in 2009 lifted the ban on the federal funding. So federal funding has been going on for it since, since then. Interesting. Yeah. So what is the difference in terms of the viability of placental stem cells that you would get from a woman in a cesarean section versus something that you would get from a blastocyst? Well, so a couple of things about that. Um, one, there's, um, it's actually to our benefit in orthopedics not to be using that line of cells because those cells, starting from that time point have the ability to um, have teratogenic potential so what that means is they can potentially form tumors Mm. so that makes it obviously a big disadvantage because now we're we're adding our risk to what we're doing once they've gotten to the point where it's a part of the the whole you know we call this like a human uh, placental stem cell or mesenchymal stem cell and that includes the placenta the umbilical cord the Wharton's jelly is a mucus-type substance that's around the arteries of the umbilical cord. The amnion, or the amniotic sac, which is the inner layer around the, the baby, and then the outer layer is called the chorion. Now, all of that has cells in it that we would put in the category of mesenchymal stem cell or mesenchymal stem cell. Now, what that means is they have a specific 
line of tissues that they can become. So now back to when I was explaining the, the formation of the, the, the blastocyst becomes a morula, becomes a, an embryo eventually. So in that process, uh, you have this ball of tissue and then it starts to kind of fold in on itself and then it starts to layer out into these three layers. So you have endoderm, ectoderm, mesoderm. The, um, each of those kind of is directed towards a certain line of cells and tissues. The, the mesoderm and what these, uh, the mesenchymal stem cells can become are all of the things that we care about in orthopedics. So cartilage, bone, muscle, ligament, tendon. So we have that whole line of cells um, that this particular cell has the potential to become. So when we talk about a stem cell, the, by definition, what it means is, one, it can divide and become another stem cell. So it can, it can duplicate itself so that now you have another cell that can divide and become another cell. Or it can divide and differentiate into a cell that then has the characteristics of the things that you're hoping it will become. Now, that's a, a directed and ordered approach in embryology. And in the case of uh, treating an injury, what we're hoping is that that can differentiate into the injured tissue. And how long have they been doing that? Well, studies on that have been going on for at least 10 years. Um, so I want to say maybe back as early as 2007. Um, now, we've been, if you go you know, way back to the early days of uh, arthroscopy, and that would be like the late 70s and early 1980s, uh, and I don't know exactly what year, you know, he would have started doing this, but um, Dr. Stedman at, uh, in Vail, Colorado, and he was in uh, Reno and Lake Tahoe area before that, they would, um, this, he's the one that developed the microfracture procedure. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, you've had a couple of knee surgeries, so I don't know if you've heard of that term. But. I have, but I don't really recall exactly what it is. Sure. So basically, if a patient had a small cartilage defect, he took a small, uh, an awl, or like what looked like a tiny little pick, and made a puncture into the bone. And what that did is it releases marrow elements along with blood, and they were able to see with time, and you know there were occasions when they got to have second-look arthroscopy, that that cartilage could fill in. Um, now, they also found that that didn't become the native cartilage. It becomes something called fibrocartilage. So when you look at it under a microscope, it looks different compared to our normal cartilage. Hmm. Appearance, like physically, looks the same, but under the microscope looks different. What is the difference? Uh, well, the main difference in, in what's um, applicable is that um, it doesn't have the same structural properties. So it was more easily able to kind of come off with a sheer force. Mm -hmm. So just picture like so it's not your as knee durable. bending. Yeah. You could kind of flake off or, or in some cases just didn't form as well as, you know, you would want. Hmm. So, so that experience, um, and I, you know, having conversations with the, the guy that I trained with, his name is Larry Lemack in Birmingham. Uh, he noted just over his career that he always felt like patients that had worse arthritis, but they would do this microfracture procedure on, in knee arthroscopy actually would do better than patients with less arthritis, but that they didn't do the, the procedure. And so it had always been in his mind that that 
somehow that marrow stimulation was was providing something that was helping with either healing or pain relief. Um, and, and it's only now that we start to understand, you know, because the bone marrow has some of these um, mesenchymal stem cells available also. And we'll kind of talk about the differences and stuff like that. So it's essentially like a crude version of stem cell transplants, like yeah, I or think yeah, that's version. probably that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, our hope is that we're we're using cells that can again change into other things that we want. And when did they start applying this on people? Like in terms of not just tests and studies, but actually in practice, like what you do. Oh uh, well, in orthopedic sports medicine, I don't think I started to hear about it until around 2012. So that was the the first year that I was in practice, and I attended a conference. Um, in Las Vegas, and it was called the Emerging Techniques in Orthopedics. So they were kind of talking about what's the the newest and, uh, you know, most forward-thinking ideas that are coming through. So a company presented, and, and one of the uh, physicians presented information showing that they had harvested fat tissue from patients' abdomens and injected into their knee um, for patients that had knee arthritis and they were showing new growth of cartilage and, and actually improvement in some of the x-rays. So when you look at an x-ray, there's some characteristics that we look at that, you know, define what arthritis is. So if the patient has narrowing of the joint space or they have bone spurs, things like that, um, they were actually seeing more space between the bones on some of these serial x-rays. So, you know, I saw that and that was just like so incredible and something that I never heard about, read about, or, you know, had encountered before. And that's really what kind of sparked my interest. And what are they doing with the fat? Well, I've, Cause I've, I've heard that they do yeah, stem so they, cell. They harvest the fat, fat similar to like a, like a Lipo. mini liposuction. Right. And then they're, you know, they either spin it in a centrifuge or there's a, there, you know, these syringes that you can pass it through a filter and then you re-inject it. And, and what you're trying to do is, is, again, take advantage of the fact that there's these mesenchymal stem cells in the tissue. And, like, what can they just – are they just taking the fat? Like, when they spin it in a centrifuge, like, what does that accomplish? Uh, it just separates out the, the cells. So then you can, you know, inject the portion that you want. And so we do that. Do it you, visually? You've had it with PRP. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. So it's just – I've I've had it with regenikine, which is like a form of right. PRP. Correct. Yeah, with a heated up and right. take it becomes like a yellow serum. Right. So when that's the platelet layer of the blood that oh, you're looking at. Okay. Yeah. And so, so the the red cells separate out, and you can you can easily see that in the tube. And what is the difference in the results from someone who does that? Because I know quite a few people have done it that way. They've had injuries treated where There's, they suck the fat out. There, there isn't any uh, any research to differentiate like one of these treatments versus another yet. It's just not available. So it's all anecdotal in terms of like talking to patients. It's and... happening. I mean, people are collecting the data, but mm -hmm. it's just not. You know, it's not at the mature stage where, um, you know, where it's available and we have, you know, published stuff to look at and, and do you personally know of anybody who's had really good results using the fat method um yes actually uh a physician friend of mine in memphis tennessee her name's dr laura lenderman um she has utilized that quite a bit and she's been very happy with the patients that she's treated and naturally some people do better than others but right you know the the real the rigorous study of this though is still yet to come 
Hmm. It's, that's really fascinating. Like, do you, have you considered trying that or are you just... Definitely. With, yeah, but you yeah. don't so far? You just do the, the stem um, cells? I haven't had anybody placenta? specifically request it and... Um, Maybe There's, somebody wants to lose a little fat and fix their knees. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that's probably taking things in a direction I don't want to be going. But, but the, the fact is that there are, we know, you know, there are a number of different options in terms of where these sources of the cells can come from. Um, bone marrow is certainly... Um, had a lot of use and Daniel continues Cormier to be had used. had that done. That's what he told me, yeah. Yeah, he had it pulled out of his hip, and he said it was brutally painful. Then he was walking with a limp for like two weeks. It's uh, Obviously, it's a procedure. Um, there's pain and there's you know morbidity. There's a consequence to you know putting a sharp object into the bone and drawing morbidity. that bone marrow out. Yeah, so That's that means a, a, a bad thing that I don't happens like that after. word. No, it's, we don't like it either. <laughs> In medicine. Morbid is we a bad com- word. We have conferences called uh, morbidity and mortality, and that's where Oof. you basically own up to things that you've done a terrible job with or explain, you know, why somebody has died as a result of your care. Ooh. And it's a awful thing to go through, and it's critically important to be able to evaluate yourself and understand what things happen when they don't go the way that we want them to. So it's an important exercise that physicians go through to you know, review cases. So, oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially if you're dealing with people that are broken apart. I mean, essentially, as an orthopedic surgeon, you're dealing with people whose bodies have failed, right? Your, yeah. your limbs have failed, yeah. ligaments have torn off the bone, yeah. knees have exploded. I mean, you've t- told me some gnarly stuff in terms of the kind of injuries that you've had to treat, and I can only imagine some, some of bad them. things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so... Your time doing this with placental stem cells, how long have you been doing that? Uh, it's been a couple of years. Yeah. So essentially, you d- did mine, I think, how long ago was it? I like think it was year? July of 2015. Yeah, so I kind of came in pretty pretty early. Because yeah. Jeff Davidson, the doctor from the UFC, he was the one who told me about it because he had shoulder surgery and um, he was very stiff and had real problems after the shoulder surgery and right. was... Um, just very unhappy with his range of motion and the pain that he's experiencing. And then he got some stem cell treatments and it just all went away. And he trains a lot. Yeah. He trains really hard and, and he's very fit. I was pretty impressed with, uh, you know, what he told me about how he was, what he was able to get back to after, you know, he had been treated with, uh, that type of injection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So he told me, and then, um, I was like on the fence. I mean, I'd seen an orthopedic surgeon and the only thing that was keeping me from getting surgery is, you know, he put me through all these, um, stress tests where he pushed down on my arm and Mm. all this stuff. And I resisted all of them. And he's like, this is, it's kind of (laughs) odd that your injury is this bad, but you have so much strength in your joint still. Yeah. Like maybe you should hold off a little bit before you get the surgery. He's like, cause I thought that when I examined you too, because I really couldn't reproduce your pain. Yeah. So, and that, and that's, that's another reason. And, and I probably would have been in the same boat as the first guy in terms of, uh, you know, trying to make a decision about surgery, uh, because, you know, if your physical exam doesn't, you know, show that somebody has some significant deficit, it's, it's hard to make the jump to take somebody to surgery. Well, during normal everyday life, there'd be like zero pain. Right. The problem is what I put my body through is, has nothing that resembles normal Not everyday normal life. life yeah. Between jujitsu and kickboxing and kettlebells and archery and yeah. there's just so much explosive movements and so much weight-bearing movements. And yeah, you're just, doing really high-demand stuff. Yeah. 
So in that in that case, that was one of the reasons why I was thinking because like I don't want to walk around with a compromised body. I'm like if I have to just get surgery and then take six months of rehab or whatever. Like what is the for a type of shoulder injury that I had? What is the rehabilitation time? Um, you know for sure probably three months. I mean it, it can be longer than that. It it depends on the patient. Um, somebody like you that you know, one of the things that we um, have trouble with with some patients they've never even lifted weights for example oh yeah so for them the rehab the recovery and rehab we're introducing things to them that they've never seen or done right and they don't understand the difference between you know being sore and and pain that's that they should be conscious about um and it's challenging it's hard work and it's uncomfortable and so some patients you know they're they struggle to get through that part of it um, and it naturally will take longer to improve. So it, it's harder for them to get their motion. It's longer, much longer for them to return their strength. Now you already have like a significant baseline level of strength. So, you know, much easier in your case to bounce back. And then also the things that you would do in rehab, they're so rudimentary, you know, you would move through that very quickly. And then, uh, once you're at the point where you have had enough tissue healing and it's safe to progress you. Um, you know, through higher level exercises, then you could really push it and you would, I mean, you would be committed to it, dedicated, uh, diligent. I mean, we'd almost have to hold you back. Yeah. That was another question that I had. How often do you have people where that is the, the issue? Like I know you, you've treated a bunch of fighters and when you treat MMA fighters, is that an issue where you're trying to like slow them down? Go all the time. You got to let people know, like, and one of my, uh, you know, one of the lines that I'd say to all my patients, um, regularly is you know you got to respect biology like you have to allow the healing to happen i know you feel good i know you're moving good and you're ready to go you want to be back on the court on the field things like that but if we don't take the proper progression you know we risk having you re-injure and then you're right. right back in that same boat we don't we only want to have you miss the most limited block of time that you can so i never want to I don't want people to miss one more practice game, you know, match, workout, or whatever than they have to. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to put them in a situation that's unsafe. So it's always a, it's a balancing act. So in your time of doing this, have you had people that didn't respond to this particular type oh, of definitely. therapy? Yeah? Definitely, yeah. And were they the people that we talked about before that don't exercise and aren't in um, good shape? Or is it across so the board? I, you know, I would have to go back and look and, and kind of critically evaluate each case. Um, Certainly, you know, we worry about the patient that um, has lower, like, baseline fitness, like their overall health is poorer, you know, and what their response might be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's information that is still, you know, to come. But definitely, I mean, some of the people that have responded the most dramatically, like, for example, you and John Dudley, I mean, you guys are fanatical about your nutrition, you're working out regularly. You're doing all kinds of things to optimize your chance to not, you know, in this case, heal, but in other instances, perform. Uh, and I have to believe that that has, you know, that's a huge factor. Yeah, I would wonder what, how much of a factor it is if your body is conditioned in a way to constantly generate muscle tissue and breaking down and rebuilding. And sure. it's always constantly under stress. Uh, definitely has to be a part of it. Mm. You know, I, I think it's uh, it, it's not 
the typical realm of my specialty to be looking at all those other factors. But I think with all of the information that's becoming available, one of the cool things for me has been it's forcing me to have to learn about it. It's forcing me to have to take a look at, you know, how can we do better? You know, what are we ignoring? And I think if you're not looking at every aspect of that wheel, then you're missing a chance to do as good as you can for, for each patient. Um, and it might be things that we have to do before somebody even has treatment. We might have to bring them up to some baseline level with mm. a number of different things, you know. Um, and so, and the other side of it too is we're we're in a we're in a system now where there's so much information. You know, one person can't be your source for everything. So you really have to have a good team all around you. Um, I think that's really important. So that's, thing- I find myself more and more seeking help, help and just saying, Hey, I, I just don't, I don't know enough about this. Like, can you, can you help me with this or explain it better? Or, right. you know, can I have the patient talk with you and, and maybe get some more information? And I think that may give them even better uh, chance to do well. Just cause the options and the possibilities are so comprehensive and time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in a typical orthopedic practice, you don't have a ton of time to go through all of this with every patient. Um, and so you just have to make sure that you're providing resources and, and getting them as good information as available. One of the things I thought was interesting, you were telling me that there's uh, been really good results with people going into a sauna directly after treatment. Well, that, I don't know that there's been good results. I think it's, it's interesting. And the things that you've talked about for other applications in terms of heat shock proteins, mm-hmm. you know, there's some belief that that may either assist the cells in pro- proliferation or their ability to, you know, have as robust uh, um, a response as possible. You know, that's not proven. That's, that's hypothesis, mm-hmm. you know. But I think it's interesting. And, again, it it's, falls into the category of a lot of these things that we're talking about where the science, the basic science is there. Like, we understand how it happens in the embryo, in the developing child, we know what it does in a lab. Like we can add these things to a Petri dish and watch it, watch these changes happen. But nobody has demonstrated this in a human, in a clinical trial where we're treating an injury. Right. So we have to be very careful about that. And that, in fact, the, the FDA is very clear that, you know, we cannot be making those claims. Companies can't be making those claims about their products. And physicians cannot be making claims and marketing their practice to drive people to them stating that these things are happening. Now, so, when, when you talk about heat shock proteins, um, I don't know if you can answer this question, but is there a difference between the heat shock proteins that you receive from, say, like a steam shower, like a steam room, versus, versus sauna, a sauna, and, yeah, versus even a hot bath? I've heard people saying that you get heat shock proteins from a very hot bath. And I think you would have to, there would have to be some kind of biopsy or blood test mm. and you know sample like have people go through each of those things and control for all those factors I mean, right I, but I the whole know. idea is just being involved in an environment that's extremely hot where your body is like what is this guy doing and then it produces the heat shock proteins right. to try as to compensate a, yeah as a protective mechanism the, so that the, just the the knowledge of this i mean this is really interesting because people have been using saunas forever and yeah. it was all sort of anecdotal oh sure. the sauna makes me feel great and and i would look at them like well, what are these assholes doing they're gonna go in there and sweat <laughs> i always thought it was people that were just like lazy and they didn't want to lose weight and so they went in the sauna and they thought they lost <laughs> weight sweat in the sauna. yeah, yeah i really did think they're that. just dropping water but um talking to Dr. Rhonda Patrick and she was explaining the um, the benefits of uh, sauna where there was one study where 
mortality decreased 40% from all causes through I think I daily to use that. of the sauna. Yeah, yeah. all-cause mortality was less. Yeah, 40%. Here it is right now. Using the sauna four to seven times per week associated with a cool. 40% lower uh, all-cause mortality might be heat shock protein, sciencedaily.com. Fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, you can click on it. Click on it, young Jamie. Here we go. So, okay, so that's, there. I mean, um, Journal of American Medical Association. So serious stuff, right? I mean, that it's a peer-reviewed journal. Yeah. You, you know, you can assume that there may be some validity of the information. Amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, if that's correct, if, that, if, if all I have to do is get in the sauna and I, you know, can decrease my chance of death from all... <laughs> You had all diseases by 40%. Like, yeah, yeah I'm, cancer, I'm heart attack, leukemia. Amazing. Here's a what a suitable replacement. Hot bath won't be as robust, but can increase blood flow, elevate heart rate, increase, increase heat shock proteins. So she's saying it just won't be as robust. Obviously, so, she's never taken one of my baths. So, you know, a simple thing to find out, or like what you could do yourself, is check your heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, you know, just like just take those as like a baseline. Mm, right. After each of those, you know, sessions, mm-hmm. and see if there's difference. How much does your body temperature elevate during those things, and how much of it is the surface of your well, skin? I mean, you can you can't elevate your core temperature too much, or you're going right. to have that's what I'm saying enzymatic breakdown. <laughs> like, there's yeah. bad things that are going to happen. Yeah, I wonder but, like what the line is, the point of diminishing returns where the sauna becomes detrimental versus beneficial. Sure. Yeah, and I wonder like how uh, cryotherapy comes into play with that as well because cold shock proteins also show some great benefit in reducing inflammation and yeah it's, all, it's just an amazing time for all the different definitely uh, the options that are available to people you know I, I think at the same time uh one of the things that we have to be conscious of is you know being responsible about how we use this information and what we're telling patients and you know I think there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of people taking advantage of that. And so, uh, you know, we want to try to avoid that. We want to try to give people good information so that they can ask the right questions and they can evaluate places where they're going to see if they're comfortable with what they're being told and what's being offered. So I think there's something like 200 plus regenerative medicine clinics that have popped up in the last couple of years. Hmm. And that means at least 40 of them are bullshit. Well, By my yeah. math, I mean maybe, <laughs> maybe eighty, maybe more than that. Who maybe knows? Ninety. Well, <laughs> I just think people have to be cautious and careful about yeah. you know what I they're reading, imagine. what they're saying, and some of these places have received direct letters from the FDA saying, "Hey, you can't say that, right? Like, you can't right. be making claims." Um, so let's and- go over some stuff that's definitely beneficial, like platelet-rich plasma. PRP injections, people have had real benefit from that, right? Sure. So um, that has some validated outcome studies. Um, There's a comparison study with PRP uh, on tennis elbow or lateral epicondylitis, comparing that to corticosteroid injections, which is a common treatment for Mm -hmm. attempt to give pain relief. Um, In the particular study that I'm thinking of, they had, you know, 73% of the patients that received PRP had relief of their pain compared to about 50% of patients with a steroid injection. Hmm. So that's a head-to-head study comparing treatment and, you know, the advantage seemed to be to PRP. Now, what is the difference between the results, I don't know if you even know this, between the results of PRP and Regenikine? 
I don't know much about that product, actually. I mean, I know what it is. I know that it was, you know, going on in Germany. Yeah. I know a lot of people traveled to Peyton Europe. Manning, Kobe Bryant, all those guys flew yeah, in. Yeah, Alex Rodriguez, I think. Yeah, kinda. Dana White did, too, the president of the UFC. He went in there for tinnitus, and you know, and uh, found through uh, intramuscular injections, there's a deep relief of uh, tinnitus. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's great. And again, there there may be great applications for all of the different things that fall into this category of biologic treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, Time is going to tell us what things pan out clinically to be best. I mean, you can look at all kinds of factors and we can draw conclusions from that. But ultimately, you know, the proof is going to be when we have, you know, robust clinical studies that compare treatment um, and, you know, we have follow-up physical exams and we have follow-up imaging to see exactly what's happening. So we know what we are hoping for. We know what we want to see. We want to see that, yeah, we have this cell that has the potential to differentiate into other tissue and actually causes healing. Mm. Um, but nobody has demonstrated that yet. There are some studies. I mean, there's, there's 35 studies, uh, 29 are animal. There's six, six or seven that are uh, human trial. I, I just saw this uh, review paper, and I don't. I didn't know if the review paper had been written before one of the more recent um, clinical trials was published. Um, there's so the one was on uh, knee arthritis, and the others were on mostly foot and ankle stuff. Um, the most recent is uh, from USC, and uh, in combination with uh, a doctor that's in Indiana, and they looked at patients that had. Uh, a knee arthroscopy, and they resected part of the meniscus. So we call that a meniscectomy. And part of it was essentially cut out. So there was a tear. They cut out the bad tissue. They left the remaining healthy tissue. And they did an MRI, and they measured on the MRI the volume of meniscal tissue. Then they injected the patient with a bone marrow aspirate. So in this case, it was the you know BMAC or bone marrow aspirate um, Which is stem cells extracted from bone marrow, like the way Daniel Cormier had done? Correct. Okay. So they injected that into the knee, and then I think, I want to say it was four or eight months later, I think it was eight months, they re-imaged the knee, and they found that there was a 15% increase in the meniscal volume. So the patients had apparently grown meniscal tissue. I had a meniscus scope on my left knee. Um, from uh, an ACL injury that I had. I had uh, ACL surgery, but there was still some meniscus damage. And then uh, at, the, um, at the time of the ACL injury, they tried to stitch up the meniscus. And oh, okay. They just tried, they tr- they tried to, to repair it. Cut it out. Mm-hmm. And it was a problem for me for several years. And then finally it tore, it became a bucket handle tear mm. where it locks, yeah. you know, so it locked mm-hmm. my knee out, brutally painful yep. in the middle of a jujitsu class. Mm. It was really bad. So uh, I had to get it scoped. And then once I got it scoped, it was, it was functional, but it would provide me with maybe every couple of weeks, it would be painful. Mm. There would be something going on, it would ache, it would be a problem. You shot some stem cells in there a year ago. I've had okay. zero problems with it since. Zero. Nothing. Nice. It's like, like I don't even acknowledge that I have a, a knee that's weaker than the other knee anymore. It doesn't even feel like that anymore. My left knee feels exactly like my right knee now. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, I mean, for 
a decade plus I had pain in that knee. That's one, one injection, a year later, nothing. And it was almost within two months, within two months after the injection, I, I felt like a significant difference. I was like waiting for those days because those mm. days when I pushed it hard, particularly after kickboxing, okay. there's something about those like hard pad work, like kicking the pads, yeah, any, all the impact. I was going to say any particular things that you were doing that made it feel the worst. That was the big one. Is striking because striking is just jarring and there's just so much and I just think there's just there was laxity in the knee is that a word yes why does it sound wrong no I know it's a word I say that but it lot. sounds it sounds wrong no, laxity sounds yeah. wrong it sounds like a laxative <laughs> it sounds like I'm making up a word you know no. I was laxity from my laxative um, but that kicking uh, motion would always you know and it would just hurt and I would put ice on it and you know, huh. I'd be just go about my day I'd be like well it's fine it's not swelling up too and bad. now it's something you don't think about dude it's zero I ran uh, a trail yesterday in the mountains like brutal steep trail for two miles I have zero pain in it today so this is the kind of thing that I think gets a lot of us excited about what the potential is that, yeah you know you've got a patient here that you had a meniscal tear, then you, so you had attempted a repair. We know that about 15 to 22% of those fail the meniscal repairs. You know, it's a disappointing number. You know, we like things to be much higher than that. Uh, but that's what the, the facts are. Um, that's what the, you know, larger scale studies have told us. And to anybody that has a meniscal injury, that's a risk worth taking. Because if you know no what doubt. it feels like to have a bucket handle tear and someone says, hey, you have an 80% chance of success, you're like, I'm in. Yeah, I'll take it. Well, also for the, this is what we know. This is why we will take the risk. So for a young person that has the tear, you know, we want to preserve that meniscal tissue in, for as long of their life as we can. So certainly you are willing to risk it. And even you sometimes might attempt to repair something that you think even has a lower chance just because they're young and you want to preserve that. Why you want to preserve it is we know that if you even resect a small amount of the meniscal tissue, like say up to 25%, um, it will change the contact pressure in the knee. So they do these, you know, color pressure studies where it, it shows you the amount of, of force and its distribution. And with a normal meniscus, it's evenly distributed into the, you know, on the, the medial femoral condyles, the end of the femur, and then the tibial plateau is the top part of the shin bone. So when those come together with a normal meniscus in there, the pressure's even. If you resect part of that, now you see this point loading. So you see these mm. hot spots where it's, there's a much greater amount of, pr of pressure. Sort of like when you go to a restaurant and you're sitting at a table and it's wobbly and you have to stick a napkin under one of the legs. Um, is that a bad analogy? Maybe. Probably bad now. I'm not following you, but you know what I'm talking about. I've done that. When yeah. you're eating, I've been thump, 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 then you're like, oh, yeah, and then the guy the comes sucks. and he kind of yeah. twists the one uh, or he puts leg like a, a little higher, yeah. a piece of uh, wedge under there, and I know what you're saying. Yeah, I don't know that. It's not the best. If analogy. that makes sense for you, it that's, doesn't. That's fine. I tried. I swung and I missed. Let's continue. That's all right. <laughs> but the point of the story is that we know if we cut part of that out, your cartilage is going to have some wear and tear over time. Right. Now, whether or not you develop symptoms from that is hard to it's hard to predict. Well, I'm pretty sure that so. that's what was going on with my knee because because it was uneven mm -hmm. and the jarring action of kicking a heavy bag or kicking pads. So I think the what I was trying to get to, and I was taking the long path to get there, was that, you know, in the past what we might have said is, eh, you know, you had an ACL tear, you had a meniscus tear, you know, your knee's crappy, sorry, like you're going to have some pain. 
Wait, and what are you trying to? What are you kickboxing for at your age anyway? I've heard you know, that. Th- this is this would be the attitude, right? Um, and really, what that means is, I'm uncomfortable because I don't have an easy solution for you. So I'm going to blame you for. Well, there's also people wanting you to adopt their lifestyle, or them to think that your lifestyle is foolhardy. There's definitely that. I mean, I had well, a conversation. Just looking, with they're a, trying to find an easy solution so that you don't come back into the office and complain about something that we don't have an easy solution for. Also, I think they're trying to talk sense into you. That might be true too. In their mind, you know, like if you don't do martial arts, you see some knucklehead. You have out lower there. risk of having yeah. to come to my office. That's true. Well, it's also you see someone who's doing this and hurting themselves, and you, and you tell them, "Hey, look, you've got to stop doing that." <laughs> you know, because you think you're doing the right thing by telling them that. Right. But you know, you're you're essentially telling someone that all that stuff that makes you feel amazing. Yeah. Who alleviates stress, builds confidence. It makes yeah. you. It's you part of your soul. Yeah. yeah, it's a big part. Yeah. So how am I supposed to yeah. rip that away from you? Like, well, for some people, it's, it becomes a real, I mean, obviously with certain injuries. Yeah. But um, some people we have to have the hard discussion. It's like, look, yeah. I know you want to keep doing this. I know you think you're heading that direction, but this is over. Well, when they do replacements now, because uh, I know a guy who's got a knee replacement, and one of the things he was mm-hmm. saying, actually, I know a few, quite a few people. One of them was on the podcast. His name is Dan Pena. Okay. And he was saying that uh, the problem is with his knees is they only bend this way now. They don't move side to side. There's no lateral movement in the knee. Okay. Like, there's no wiggle room. All right. Well, like, he can't go side to side. Like, the knee just goes straight up and back like this. Okay. Artificial knee. Does that make sense? Mm. No, you, you got skeptical hippo face. Well, there's, it <laughs> depends on a lot of factors. Um, maybe for him, mm-hmm. um, there may be other patients that don't have, you know, quite as much stiffness in their knee. But no one who gets a hip replacement is doing triathlons. They shouldn't be. Or a knee replacement, rather. They shouldn't be. Yeah. No. So it's limited They're, With use. 100% certainty, that implant will loosen and fall apart. Huh. Why can't they make a knee, a fake knee, that's as good as a real knee? Hmm. That's a long question. Are they lazy? <laughs> no, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> certainly uh, certainly lots of motivation and uh, you know, economic reward. reward oh, if you my can, God. If, if they could fix a that. knee and turn a knee into uh, a superior knee to the knee that you have now? So the... I mean, the, it's like an overall question, right? Why can you not uh, replace something better than you can repair it? Well, mm-hmm. wouldn't wouldn't we want to be going more towards repair and renewal? Right, regeneration. Like, yeah, we wish we wish we're hoping that we can, you know, figure something out for that. But well, that's the fact is, with a knee replacement, you have a metal component that you're either, you know, cementing to the bone, or you're, you know applying it to the bone and having bony ingrowth into the implant. Hmm. So there, there's an interface between that implant and the body. And to come up with something that would never allow that to separate, I mean, that's, you know, how would you do that? Yeah. I know a guy who had bone cancer. It's a really kind of a terrible story, but he lived near a golf course and the golf course used these horrible pesticides, and it leaked into the groundwater, and all the people in his neighborhood got cancer, like a huge epidemic of cancer in his neighborhood, and he got bone cancer, and they replaced one of his femurs mm. with a metal rod, mm-hmm. and uh, it causes him significant we did, discomfort. We did some of those in my training. It's a did you? pretty gnarly Ooh, surgery. What's that about? Talk to me. 
<laughs> Total femur? Yeah, I cut someone open like a fish and stick a new leg in there. Ah, uh, you literally do. It's an incision about that long. Whoa, he's yeah. making his arms about, what, stretch your arm about four well, feet, it's three the, feet? It's the entire length of however long your thigh is. Ay, chihuahua. Yeah. Okay. It's gnarly. Yeah. They all get infected. They do? It seems like it. Wow. Yeah. Now, post-op, like right away, or you mean in time? Over time. Mm. Yeah. Just because your body's rejecting it? doesn't have really to do with it. It's just you got this big hunk of metal and the Rubbing bacteria, um, bacteria forms, you know, this sort of slime layer that can't be, um, even with antibiotics, you know, blood can't get to the metal. So you form this layer and then it's just, it, once it's contaminated, you can't control it. Whoa. So the metal on the leg, the fake leg, just gets slimy? Uh, not so much that it gets slimy. It's just the... The stuff that's produced by the bacteria adheres to the metal. Oh. So. And it's oh. just so much metal in the body. There's so much opportunity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what do you so. do when it gets infected? Got to open them up again? Clean it up? You do. You try. But oh. the the end of the line is, uh, you Amputation? know, the limb has to go. Whoa. Yeah. Daddy. Jamie's, Jamie almost threw up. I just thought that. You got an image? Yeah. Pull it up. Ah. Don't, don't pull it do up. That. You don't come. You're a doctor. How dare you? How dare you say don't pull it up? You're. This is what you do, man. That's no, like, I'm, just, I'm feeling bad. I it's didn't like have me like saying, pictures, right? I didn't know we were anybody, gonna, uh, I didn't know we were going to get the total femur. What? Yeah, that's go pretty. large with that, sir. Why? Yeah. Come on to see that. I don't even. Holy Jesus! Yeah, that's it. Whoa, my yeah, God! First of all, what am I looking at there? So that's the the femur. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a metal femur, and the. Hmm. Just Google replace femur and the, look at the, the first legs opened up there, up. And, and you have to make measurements. And so it's basically a, a total knee and a total hip, and then all of the bone in between has been replaced with that metal. Wow. And then your foot's just attached to your regular shin below it. Correct. Oof. And what is this normally used for? Like how often? What is this? Uh, so that would be in the case of uh, infection and, you know, there's – the cases that we had were usually multiple fractures below a hip replacement and then and then below uh, a longer stem hip replacement. Finally, you've got just no bone. Uh, the other you know, reason would be infected bone that you had to resect. And then still another reason would be in the case of tumor where you have to – you're doing limb salvage. Yeah, that was this gentleman's. Yeah. Now, that one above, Jamie, where it's got like they're spreading it apart far – yeah, right there. What's going on there? What's all that stuff on the outside? That, um, that orange stuff. Oh, so uh, that's called Ioban, and it's a thin film that we cover over where we're making an incision in surgery. It's to help prevent infection. So we naturally have, you know, staph and other bacteria on the surface of the skin, and you put this sticker cover on top of the skin, and then anything that's around the wound is, is contained. It says play video. I think you should listen to him. Click on that. Let's see what that is. Yeah, let's see who this is. Oh, it's just a picture of. Oh. It's just a picture of that that says that I can. Oh. Visit page, play, play video. There we go. Ooh. I'm scared. You getting nervous? Oh, oh daddy. Yeah. Whoa, boy. Whew. Now, that seems so really I, I like odd. to do surgery through incisions like that are about this big. Yeah, little tiny incisions. Yeah. Now, that seems odd because that seems like a very old person. Like I'm looking at the lack of muscle tissue, either mm-hmm. very old or very unathletic. Uh, yeah. And um, this is like it's a good, of, good I mean, evaluation. That's incredibly traumatic. Then I mean, that's 
the, the, how does someone recover from that? It's slow. <clears throat> now, is there a potential use of stem cells in the case of like, is it, is it possible to regenerate a bone? I know they've built a woman, a artificial bladder well, through stem theoretically, cells. Theoretically, bone is one of the tissues yeah. that is a part of that line of the mesenchymal stem cells. Right. That's what I'm that saying. That comes from the mesoderm. So you think that could be something down the line that they could be able to um, accomplish? There, I mean, replacing that femur and, and its cartilage covering at the knee and the hip, I mean, I think that's, at this point, um, a fantasy. Yeah, but isn't that but, what they said when, when if someone came up to the person that had the telegraph and said, hey, do you think one day I'll be able to send dick pics from this thing? <laughs> They're like, well, right now, that's a fantasy. Right? Don't you think? Probably. Most likely, you know, they would look at you like you're a crazy person. Well, when I was... Uh, <laughs> This is an embarrassing story to admit, but when I was about 13, uh, I went next door to my neighbor's house, and he was kind of a computer nerd at the time. But, you know, computer nerds at the time were playing with, like, Commodore 64. Right. And he's like, dude, look at this. Um, I can hook my computer up to the phone, and I can type on the screen, and my friend down the street will see what I wrote. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, dude. Can't we, like, go play football? Like, what are you talking about? I so a, apparently I'm not a very forward-thinking guy because obviously we're doing that quite a bit now. I had a Showtime special in 2005, a Netflix special, actually, that eventually wound up on Showtime. But I had a joke in there about cell phones, um, about people sending you a text message. And the part of the joke was, like, it takes you four presses to get an S Right. Like, why don't you just call me? Because like it was before anybody had figured out <laughs> right. how to you know, make an actual that. keyboard. And I'm like, why are you making me read? Like, this is so stupid. I yeah. thought it was just like a dumb trend that yeah. was going to go away. And now if someone calls me, I go, fuck are you calling me for? Yeah. Like, it's, it's very strange what's happened in just 12 years. Yeah, it's a total shift in how we communicate with people, right? A massive one. I mean, how uh, how disruptive to your life is it to have to like send emails now i mean to sit down and like type an e like email respond back so many emails you like people email me with like a bunch of questions it's a big chore it's like homework i gotta sit down it takes a lot of time yeah whereas you know a text is like a quick response like hey i, what know, about I this? just i'm so used to email i send a lot of emails really? I have so much email. I have, I well, I do all the booking for this show, too. Okay. I mean, well, I have a guy, Matt Staggs, who contacts people, but I reach out to a lot of people as well. So, like, a lot of the booking and the different things that I do, I, I contact people. Sure. And, you know, I, the best way to do it is through an email. It's like, hey, you know, I would really love to talk to you about this or that. I have a question about but that. But these are brief emails, I would bet. Sometimes, mm. yeah. But I've gone I've, – I've had some – yeah, that's the problem is the volume. The sheer volume I get is just mm. unmanageable oh, I, to the point yeah, where people imagine. think I'm ignoring them. I'm like, man, I'm not ignoring you. I didn't even see it. It just got lost in the tsunami of emails <laughs> that came in. Like if I go on vacation, I hardly communicate. I, I barely do anything. Maybe I'll put up a social media post and, you know, just just to like it's – because it's kind of a part of the job, right? But I don't – pay attention to emails i just leave them alone and then i get home and i'll go oh my god there's two thousand emails i'll have two thousand emails in a few days and i'm not i'm not exaggerating do you go through all, all of those 
I do my best. Try to. I yeah. look for my friends. Yeah. You know, I look for people that are important and uh, look for uh, acquaintances that I like and, you know. You got to have a system. Work-related stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a mess. Yeah. I have several email accounts, too, which yeah, helps. I'm sure. Like, people that are important to me get the big one, you know. <laughs> You don't get you don't get the bad one. I don't, have, don't worry about it. I, I like you. I don't think I, I, don't, think I don't, have if any. If you do, them. I'll give you the real one. Just right. want to let you know. You I know? won't tell anybody. People don't like to be on the outside. You tell them about that, and they're like, "Which one do I have, bro?" Yeah, uh, right. Why worry about it, man? What list am I on? Why worry about it, man? Yeah, yeah. If you, um, got but, it, if you have to ask the question, yeah, it's not good. I wonder when it's going to pass what we're doing i mean when it's not going to be this it's not going to be typing like what's the next thing mm. what is uh you know it's, it's definitely not going to be videos where you force people to watch the beautiful thing about an email is i can kind of scan it through what's yeah. this guy saying not interested next have you messed around with uh like dragon dictation yes yeah. yes it's amazing for notes it's when you're a in a car yeah. or when um, if I have an idea in my head and there's no way I can type it on my phone that quickly. Mm. Have you ever seen how good it works? It's, no, it's very good. Yeah, no. The, well, just what comes the, like with Like the most phone. recent uh, versions of it. Yeah, like this right here. Check this out. Dr. Roddy McGee is an amazing <laughs> human being. He has fresh breath and his hair is wonderful. Look at that. Perfect. 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 Yeah, 100%. That's incredible. That's pretty good. I mean, it is. it really is incredible. And you could do that in your car if you have an idea so you're not some asshole that's texting. Because sometimes, like Neil, Neil Brennan had the best analogy for it. You know who Neil Brennan is? Stand-up comedian, mm -hmm. co-creator of The Chappelle Show. He had the best analogy. He goes, my notebook is essentially like a net for catching ideas. Yeah. And you got to catch those ideas yeah. like, as quick as you can. I'm like, sure. oh, that's a good way of looking at it. So, like, if you're, if I'm in a car and I have an idea, I'm like, oh my god, I got to get this out before I forget. Right. So I start repeating it to myself, mm. and then if I'm at a red light or something, I will press that record button. Very responsible of you. I'm, I'm very responsible when it comes to texting and driving. That's good. I'm, I just, I think that is one of the most it's infuriating really things. It's fucking terrible. Yeah. It's like you're going sixty plus whatever miles an hour. The amount of distance that you cover. In a glance where you are not looking at the road and things can happen at any moment. Yeah. Just to me, it's super disturbing. Yeah. Anyway, back to the, back to the grind. Um, what, did, what do you got there that you would like to cover? Well, um, so, you know, okay, so we touched a little bit about, about you know, all of, the, all of the elements of the care of the person, right? So it's, it has to be more than just giving you a shot and sending you on your way. Right. If you truly have an injury and we're trying to recover you, then what also comes along with that is the appropriate rehab protocol. And, and none of those are defined yet for, for what some of these things that we've done. Um, but we're trying to develop that and, and dial it in and hone it down. For me, for me right now, the easiest thing is to try to adapt it from a surgical rehab. Um, and I'm not a physical therapist, obviously, so I try to collaborate with those guys and and girls that uh, are smarter than me in that uh, avenue. But the the principles are the same, right? So you have you have an injury that you're trying to heal. Now, in some cases, it's you know we've created the injury or we've done the the thing that the patient has to recover from. In the case of an injection, you have an injury. You've you've done the injection, and now we need the effect to happen. Um, whatever it is that we're hoping that will be. So, but then you can't ignore the fact that if somebody has a bad shoulder, 
well, may, we may decrease the pain, but if they if their if their motion is poor, if their strength is poor, if it's not functioning correctly, then how how can we be achieving the best result if we're not also attending to that? Right. So it's a multi step. No doubt. And then and the more that we're learning about all these other factors, I mean, f- like again for you, I mean, you're paying attention to your sleep, you're paying attention to your nutrition, you're on uh, you know a variety of supplements that are you know, meant to help a lot of these processes. And I think we're going to get better and better at it. Diet has got to be pretty critical as well, right? It's got to be hugely important. Especially like staying away from inflammation enhancing foods or inflammatory foods. Yeah, no doubt. So, um, yeah, I I think it's got to be critically important. And we try to share that information with people. There's, um, for athletes, uh, like a website that you could pull up and we can share is the uh, college and Professional Athlete uh, Dietetics Association, I think it is. Collagen Professional? No, college and Professional oh. <laughs> Athlete. <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, collagen Professional Athletes? Like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> we all have collagen, right. but college okay. and. Yeah, so these guys have some great information and good mm, infographics that um, that we utilize, you know, since I'm Ooh, not a... That looks good. I'm not a dietitian, so I have to rely, again, on people that have good information. I, I think these guys have uh, good, reliable, they're a good, reliable source. And uh, they've got great infographics. If you go to, um, uh, hmm. educational resources, there you go. Yeah. So this will pull up some some different things. Balancing extra t- exercise induced information. Now here's a good question um, because sure. uh, it's pretty much universally agreed that rest, ice, compression, elevation, all those different things that people have said in the past that there is benefit to uh, particular icing things. But yeah, there's, there's some a lot of debate, debate about that, right? Yeah. There's some debate now. There's certainly, there's like a definite uh, anti-ice community. Yeah, what is that out there? Do you think it's legit? Well, there can't. There's not a downside to it. I mean, to ice. I don't think so. I mean, we've used it regularly, and so I don't know. There's there's definitely a group that, um, and I don't know all of their arguments against. But Misha Tate, a former UFC bantamweight champion, she yeah. had a podcast with this guy who's the anti ice guy. Yeah, like that's his whole thing. Is he a he's flat like, Earth guy too? No, but he doesn't believe in dinosaurs. I he made does that not. Up. No, I made oh. that up. Yeah, it fit. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so you, I believe he's a doctor, but he, you know, he might be a fucking veterinary, works on nah. cat infections or something. I don't know. But you know, he, I, I don't think there's a downside. I'm kidding about so that too. In, so in my opinion, you know, I, I've definitely had athletic injuries. Uh, I was a pitcher previously. We routinely iced our shoulder and elbow after pitching. Um, I did it as a matter of routine. It, made, it felt good. I felt better when I did it than right. when I didn't. But here's the question. It felt good at the time, but it is that feeling good in any way slowing the healing process? Mm, hard to know. I mean... That's it, where it gets weird, right? Yeah. I don't know, to be frank. God damn it. You're supposed I like to know. It. You're, uh, the, you're the fucking super genius nah. doctor guy. If you don't know, we're doomed. <laughs> get back to me. So uh, what I'll get else? You, I'll what? get you some good information on Thank it. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. What else you got here? Um, so, you know, I think one of the interesting things about this whole 
topic um, and the possibility of healing from utilizing this type of treatment um, is how it allows you to go through the process of healing without this fibrovascular response. So the typical healing cascade has an inflammatory phase, proliferative phase, and the maturation phase. So in the inflammatory phase, you have neutrophils and white blood cells and these enzymes that are present that are trying to start the process. Then in the proliferative phase, you're having what's called angiogenesis, and that means the development of new blood vessels and vasculature to the area. Um, and your body's producing fibroblasts, and you're laying down tissue in this sort of haphazard manner. So it's just kind of piling on in there. Then um, the maturation phase is when you have remodeling. So those that scar tissue is changing over time and, and developing into uh, tissue that's more like or is the native tissue. So that occurs over a period of time. And then a lot of times during that process, before you're fully matured, in the healing, you're back to activities. Um, the best, so let's just take an example. Like when you sprain your ankle and then you, you know, you start feeling better and, and you, maybe you go back to basketball within a couple weeks. At that point, if you've actually torn one of the ankle ligaments, you don't have native ligament tissue. That's the same structural properties. It's not as strong. I mean, you might be developing the strength around it, <clears throat> but it's not like the native tissue. Now, the hope is that we can demonstrate. Now, we, we know that this is the science. This is what it's supposed to do. This is what it does in the developing fetus. We see it in kids. You know how, you know, when your your daughter was real young, she scratched her face. The healing and it was Wolverine. Like, it was like gone like the next day, right? Yeah. Um, so healing without scar is, you know, has to do with not forming this, these fiber, this fibroblast um, fibrovascular response and, and fibrotic phase. Mm -hmm. Now, what the cool potential of this to me is if we can skip that and we can have more complete healing and quicker resolution to the native tissue, then you're going to have those, the same properties. You're going to be stronger. You're going to be better, you know, technically and hopefully, you know, clinically this pans out that you would be more resistant and lower risk for repeat injury because that's really our goal is in treating patients is get them back to their activity and decrease the chance that they have to miss more time. And how do you know how much to inject into Nobody these? knows. Oh, Jesus. Nobody knows that. That's, <laughs> this is one of the big questions that, we right. have, that will be discovered with, again, you know, rigorous studies where we can look at, you know, what should the dosing be? What should the frequency of the treatment be? And what should these, the protocols before and after be? Uh, it's not defined. And anybody that's telling a patient that they have exactly what it should be, I mean, be wary of that because mm. that has not been discovered yet. So, we're trying to we're trying to take you know we're taking the information from our experience and applying it that way. It's it's not the it's not the best way to go about this. And it it's one of the things that PRP suffered from is that all of the things everybody was using it for so many different things and and just kind of hoping that it was the magic bullet that it was going to treat all the things that we had difficulty treating. Mm -hmm. um, and even all of the studies that were coming out. You know, people were using different centrifuges and applying it for different reasons, different protocols. It was just a mishmash of information. It wasn't valuable. 
How, do, how so, does platelet-rich plasma work? So it has growth factors and cytokines, and the, um, the, the platelets release proteins and things, and those things help mediate that inflammatory response and help the healing process. I mean, that's kind of the basics. Do you think that they could work in a symbiotic fashion with like this There's kind of- information that adding PRP to uh, some cellular treatment like bone marrow fat or the placental tissue uh, in that line of treatment can help expand the cells. Ooh. So that gets us to an important point, which is uh, expanding the cells has been done and is not currently legal in the United States. So there was a, a place, and they, they do it in other countries, but here, if you, if you more than min- – this is a mouthful – if you more than minimally manipulate the tissue, then that is not under the guidelines of the FDA for – use of human cellular tissue products. So they were taking, for example, bone marrow and plating it and growing more cells, bringing the patients back two weeks later and injecting them with this, you know, super production of cells, Mm. which probably is great, but we don't know. We don't know if that's safe. And, and that has to be, you know, that has to be taken through the appropriate process. Mm. So... So you can't necessarily recommend someone taking PRP while they're taking some sort of a stem cell injections? So here's the difference of that. Okay. A manufacturer can't say that we have a product that is a combined PRP stem cell injection. Right. And it does this. Right. That's illegal. But if you are a patient... I can't put on my website... Right. I have the magic potion. It's PRP and amniotic fluid and tissue. I we inject admire, it, and it can heal anything. I it admire can, how responsible you are, how you keep cutting me off whenever yeah. I was suggesting some ridiculous thing. <laughs> but is would there be a benefit for a patient, potential benefit, who is getting stem cell injections and also gets PRP at the same time? Or is it just theoretical? Uh, it's theoretical right now, yeah. But potentially. Definitely, definitely uh, there's potential, and it's encouraging to, you know... That, that the possibility is there. Mm. It appears to be safe. There, you know, we don't have adverse reactions to it. Um, and so, and the point that I wanted to make is that a physician can prescribe something and use it off-label. Right. So the FDA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine. I can do that in my office, but I can't make claims about it. And I can't put it on social media and on my website and say, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to fix your shoulder, like come here if you have a meniscus tear, because we do this injection and it's going to make you better. That's illegal. I understand. So, but I, if somebody comes to my office, you know, I can elect to do that because both things are available. Um, They have, we have permission, you know, to use them, but we're using it off label. I understand. So, now, um, when you say maximize cells, that's the term used? Maybe. What is it, the term used about PRP in, in conjunction? Oh, we think that it can increase the proliferation of the mesenchymal stem cell. Oh, so, and yeah. wh- how much of a time period would it have to be between the injection and the PRP? Uh, I, that's undefined, again. So, what would you assume? The way, that, the way that we're doing it is we would do the injection at the same time. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, putting it in there together. Hmm. So, we only have a narrow window from... When we take those frozen cells and then we thaw them, 
you know, we have a short window when we can then inject them. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, maybe between seven and 21 days that those cells are viable in your shoulder or your knee, wherever we inject it. So if someone gets that injection and does PRP, they would have to essentially get that done within those seven to 21 days to have some sort of a benefit of what you're saying. Theoretically, Theoretically. yes. That, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's how I would do it currently, uh, based on that information. Mm. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. What else it's you got cool. there? Well, so um, we just, I thought it was important to talk about the, it's called Section 361 of the Public Health Service Act. And this is the definition from the FDA on the use of human cell tissue and cellular tissue products. So it has to f- match these criteria. So you have to have minimal manipulation. That means you can't add things to it. You can't combine it with other stuff. You can't... Um, like I was saying, you can't, you know, put it in the lab and grow it and add things to it and then come, bring the patient back and treat them. How, this isn't part of, the, uh, part of it, but we, you can't treat patients on a, on a different day. It has to be at the same time whenever you're harvesting the cells or utilizing whatever it is you're using. Um, it has to be something called homologous use. And what that means is whatever tissue you're taking has to have the intention of the purpose of that tissue for when you put it into somebody's body. So, for example, uh, if I have, uh, if you have a fracture that's not healing and I take a bone graft product, so cadaver bone, and we're going to use that to help heal your fracture that hasn't healed, um, that is, that's homologous use. We have, we're taking bone, we're using it to become bone or Mm -hmm. to be the scaffold for bone to heal and grow. So, um, it can't be combined with something else and it can't have, it can't be intended to have a systemic effect. So now all of these things that I'm explaining, these are rules for manufacturers and what they can, what the rules are for them to be able to market their product. So for example, you can't take amniotic fluid and say, this is a product meant for IV infusion for treatment of whatever diabetes. Right, and that up. is something that people do in other countries, right? They're doing it in other countries. You can't do that in – you technically can't do that. You can't manufacture a product and put that on the labeling that that's what it's intended for. But do they do that in America, IV stem cells? I've been told by patients that they've gone to places that have suggested to them that that was going to be the treatment. Right, and what, what is going I, on there? I'm not aware of it. What, how does that even work? Do you know? It's not your wheelhouse? No, but I, and nobody knows if it does. Mm, so it's just experimental. It is. I mean, Boss all Rutan, of this. Do you know who Boss Rutan is? Former yes. UFC champion. Yeah. Do you ever treat him? I have not. Are you allowed met to him. say that? Um, Boss, uh, I don't think I can say, talk yeah. about any patient that, unless uh, they, tell they you have you can? said it or they're sitting in front of me uh, talking about it. Anyway, okay. Yeah. I give you permission. It's, the, it's HIPAA violation. I so understand. Health Information Protection Act. For the record, I give you permission. Um, Boss Rutan went to, where did he say he go to Peru or something like that? Went to the jungle. Some dude killed a chicken and then shot some stem cells into him. Chicken uh, blood, right? His vein. He was saying it was fucking amazing. (laughs) You you know, you ever heard the way Boss talks? He's like, it's like the energy was coming out of my body. Like, ah, (laughs) he said that he literally felt like, like some guy in a Kung Fu movie where energy was like (laughs) shooting off his fingertips. He said it was amazing. 
like the emperor? He's not the only guy that said that. You know Dan Bilzerian? Do you know who Dan yeah. Bilzerian is? The not Instagram guy with yeah. the, all yeah, the boobs I'm and the familiar. butts. Uh, <laughs> he told me the same thing. He said that when he, he got it done, he said it's amazing. He goes to Mexico to get it done. Hmm. Not recommended, but Did, is he, he can't talk about it. Yeah. Off air, he'll be a little chatterbox. Just you wait. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um <laughs> Well, what I'm interested in, uh, in what I was thinking for you uh, threw me off there, um, is is he going to with a specific intent of treating something, or is he just like looking for the fountain of youth? Um, I think he fucks so much he doesn't have any <laughs> sperm in his body, and uh, he's trying to uh, kicks. I don't know. Yeah. That guy's an animal. But uh, I think he's got a series of injuries. I know that because okay. he's had regenikine for his neck. Uh, uh, he put it up on uh, he, on Instagram, like with the Instagram stories. He was videoing himself while he was getting injections in his neck, which I've had uh, regenikine injections. Neck? Yes, it, it cured my cervical disc um, bulge. What? Yeah, yeah, that and disc uh, decompression, uh, spinal decompression. You know, with like a harness where they're pulling oh, yeah. on your neck. Sure. That I had a bulging disc in my neck that was pushing on my and it nerves. Resolved. And, yeah, completely resolved. Like on an MRI, it doesn't exist anymore. Where I was getting numb hands because the really? ulnar nerve was being pressed upon. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah, it works. That's nuts. Well, it's massive anti-inflammation properties. I just don't think that it has the same healing potential. It seems like it reduces inflammation in a giant way. What's going on with, um, by the way, I had regenikine shot in my knee too. It That's what really, you told me. So that didn't really have the same effect. This it is worked a little bit. So patients like yourself that have had uh, a number of injuries and a number of treatments. One of the things that's got me enthusiastic about the potential of all this is when somebody tells me, "Look, I've had this, 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 and this, and then I had this." What we're talking about, mm -hmm. and that it was just completely different. Game changer. I'm just. 100% game Better and different. Yeah. Look, my right shoulder is not 100%, but it might be 90%, you know, and it's strong as fuck. Like, mm -hmm. I could do a lot of shit with it. Like, it I've does, seen you do some insane stuff, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it doesn't bother. Like, Things that I probably wouldn't recommend, but. No pain. Like, I'm um, glad you can. Well, I could do, um, I take these 90-pound kettlebells and I do windmills with them. Where you you know you're pressing overhead, yeah. you know what a windmill is. I do. Yeah. You're dropping down like that, so your shoulders rotating. I don't do that with ninety pounds, but I know what it is. But the the, the fact that I can do that with a shoulder that was on its way probably to getting surgery on is just amazing. My bow. Probably I, the most impressive thing was that push up with the wheel thing. What's that thing called? Oh, the ab wheel. No, it's like a little roller that you had your hand on. Oh, yeah, those things when you go forward. Yeah, what's yeah, that called? A, the company called Havoc creates it. There's okay. sliders, Havoc sliders. Okay. H-A-V-Y-K uh, sliders. There's a video of it on – see, there's a video on my Instagram, Jamie, um, from quite a while ago. But yeah. it was post-injection. Post, uh, um, it's from way back. I want to say at least a year ago I was doing that. But, um, yeah, there's my range of motions, 100%. I mean, at the most, it's uncomfortable in certain things. But for a big one for me was archery because mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I, I really enjoy it. I do it all the time, and it's, it's very meditative to me. Mm-hmm. I, I just I love archery. So for me, like the idea of not being able to pull my bow back, mm-hmm. I was it was really disturbing. I was like, God, sure. I, I'm going to have to get the surgery done. Yeah, you've been pretty committed to it for a while now. Yeah, right? and I I I'll shoot a hundred plus arrows a day, and I'm pulling back eighty four pounds. It's an eighty four pound compound bow, and I'm shooting it a hundred times a day, and there's no pain. I did it yesterday, oh, oh, like for hours. Me and my friend Cam Haynes, who you yeah. know you met, yeah, who came to and talked to you as well. Um, you we, kind of indirectly got me uh, into it. I don't know. If, I don't into know archery. If, Through John? John Dudley? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know. You're shooting all the time now, so, right? Yeah. So John got me this <laughs> unbelievable, you know, Hort, Hoyt uh, carbon spider bow. It's like, uh, if you want to see uh, any of my friends, like, make the greatest faces you've ever seen, I just I pull this thing out, and it's like, you know, some space age weapon it looks like a bow that batman would have yeah or chewbacca yeah Yeah. (laughs) or chewbacca yeah something like that yeah i would say batman but yeah but yeah it's um those bows are they're amazing it's incredible Um, and it's uh yeah i've only been able to go a couple of times but i'm I'm definitely hooked it's the most amazing meditation i love it it's because it's when you're focusing on that shot you literally have no room for anything else. It's, it requires so much concentration. You're concentrating on the front hand position, front shoulder position, where, where the string touches the tip of your nose, the corner of your mouth. And, and John is just an amazing coach. Yeah. He's, so, you know, totally unfair. I get that's the bow, the, the first bow that I get to shoot with. And then John gives me the first lesson. <laughs> That I've ever pulled a bow back. It's, he's standing there right with me. He's an Olympic coach, by the way. He used to coach the Olympic <laughs> team. And he's amazing. Yeah. I mean, he, really that guy coach. can take, he's a great guy too. And he can take years off of people's learning. I mean, he's, he's absolutely taken years off my learning curve. Yeah. I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Boy, I hate when you say you're going to sneeze and then you put a lot of pressure on yourself. And you're like, man, I, I might not. I just look like a weirdo. For a few minutes. Did you find that video? No? It's in there. I swear to God. So here's another uh, kind of crazy thing about the the placental-derived treatments is that they actually have uh, antimicrobial properties. Whoa. So this is crazy. I mean, we kind of know this. Um, you know, one of the functions of the, the amniotic membrane is to protect the, the developing baby, right? Mm-hmm. But... Um, and, and one of the things it does is protect it from infection. But what they were able to demonstrate was that um, when they, they've actually introduced bacteria, like literally injected bacteria onto these membranes, and then they come back and, and check, and it, it, it has destroyed the bacteria. So, huh. so ability to um, resist scar formation move through the the fibrotic phase of healing and then also the antimicrobial properties. It's pretty so amazing. that would be super beneficial post-surgery, right? Because that's a giant issue, staph infections and the like. It's one of the things that, you know, frightens us most about, you know, doing our procedures is, you know, can we prevent infection? Yeah, it's a giant issue where people, I mean, I know because of the nature of uh, martial arts, it just... Everybody I know is at surgery, yeah, like sure. pretty much. And the big issue is post in uh, post surgery infections. Yeah, 
Well, um, those guys are, they're getting abrasions and everything like that on mm-hmm. the mat. And then, so then they're colonized with, you know, MRSA or mm-hmm. any yeah. number of uh, whatever funk is in that gym. I tell everybody, if you are a grappler, this is super important. I want you to look up Defense Soap. Defense Soap is a soap company that was mm. created by my friend Guy Sacco. And what he, is it? It is all natural soap that promotes healthy bacteria. It doesn't destroy the healthy bacteria, mm. but it's all tea tree oil, eucalyptus oil. This shit is amazing. And I used to get, I've gotten staph at least twice. I used to get ringworm all the time. Well, not all the time, but I got it a, a couple of times. And until I was like super diligent about washing myself like immediately afterwards. But mm. once I started using two things. Probiotics, which is huge, um, yeah. acidophilus, yeah. eating yogurt, and uh, drinking kombucha. And then the next one is was there enough in the yogurt? soap. Probably not, but it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of something. Okay. It's a little bit of something. I just Fair think enough. it's good to have... It's good to have um, probiotics. I like kimchi. Yeah. I, I try to take my probiotics in multiple forms. Um, this stuff that I was drinking when you got here, kombucha, I mm-hmm. love this stuff. Yeah. I drink it all the time. Is there a particular the flavor that you like or do you mix well, them Well, you got to be or... careful because I'm a low sugar guy. So like the grapes, yeah. there's no, some no, of no. them that are delicious, but they have a lot of sugar <laughs> sure. in them. This, this multi-greens does not have a lot of sugar in it. Let me see what it's got. I think it's something like 10 grams per serving or something like that. Really? That sounds high. I think I've seen them lower. Oh, two. Yeah, that's not two grams. So yeah, that's what you want. The grapes high. Mm. Grape mm-hmm. is, but the um, of course it tastes wonderful, right? It does taste yummy. That's the problem. This does not taste so good, but you know you're getting <laughs> something good in it. And this is you the just import- fight your way through it. The important stuff is that you get the strong kombucha. This is the brand that I really like. I don't work for them. They're not a sponsor. GT's kombucha. GT- GTS. Um, this stuff is awesome, but you have to be over 21 because it has more than one half of 1% alcohol hmm. by volume because of the fermentation process because it's uh, so strong. I see. So they make you get, show your ID. Interesting. They actually pulled it from Whole Foods. I don't know if you know this. Oh, I thought – see, I thought I that's where I've seen it. Yeah, they have it back, but they oh. pulled it from Whole Foods till Whole Foods had to like put some regulations in place uh. to keep – you would literally, if you were eight years old, you could drink one and not get drunk. I mean, it's yeah, not right. like it's not like you're going to get drunk off of it, yeah. but just due to regulations, just you like have to have letter a of the law kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, what else you got? Got a lot of papers there, buddy. Well, got drawings of, and shit, charts and graphs. Stuff and, to think about. Probably a bunch of stuff you say. Don't let Joe talk about this. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Um, what other questions have you come up with along the way? Or? One big question I wanted to talk to you about was something that I had a discussion with Dr. Davidson about okay. recently. Um, and Jeff was telling me that the um, most recent procedure with stem cells is injecting them directly into the discs for people that have degenerative disc disease and that there's some really promising results. I've heard uh, anecdotally of a number of uh, very positive outcomes uh, with treatment like that. Mm. But that's like, amazing. Again, we, you know, too, too early. So too a lot of, too early I love the fact that you're I mean, very conservative about this. I really, really, really do appreciate well, that. I, Although I'm giving I've you really, a hard time. I'm I've really wrestled. You. I've really wrestled with it because, uh, you know, again, our whole training is based on, you know, we need to do things that have an evidence base for our right. patients. I mean, this is kind of the, the foundation of what we do 
And so, but we're in a unique situation. So we have patients that, um, one, we, this stuff is available and it's legal to do and it's there and people know about it now. So they, they're seeking the information. They come to us. And, right. and even, you know, even before we started talking about it, you know, it started to be like here and there. And then all of a sudden it's like two, three patients a day now, even more are saying, well, what about, what about stem cell? Should, can I have stem cell? And, uh, like, okay, well, you know, then we have to back up and like have the whole discussion, like, okay, well, let's talk about what that is and what maybe it can do. And, um, so people are seeking the treatment it's available. Um, but we don't know, we don't have a lot of information. So we just have to be forthcoming and say, look, this is experimental. We've had encouraging early results. I can tell you anecdotal stuff. We've even seen images where somebody had, you know, full thickness rotator cuff tear, Eight months later, what looked like a healed rotator cuff on an MRI. Now, did that happen on its own? Well, we know that that happens at a lower percentage, but it is possible to heal. It's just a lower percentage. Um, did it happen because of the treatment? You know, that hasn't been established. Right. So I have to really explain all that. And it, I, the other category, too, that uh, patients will come and, and they'll explain an injury and and I've had to turn away a lot of people that were, they were fully ready to come in and have treatment and, and they were fine with uh, paying out of pocket because, of course, it's not covered by insurance um, because it's experimental, because there's, you know, no data yet. And that's not true. There's not no data, but there's, there's not enough data uh, to support treatment for, you know, certain uh, conditions. Um, but... You know, I've had to tell people, I, I don't think this is appropriate even even to try, even if you want this. Um, and usually the category is, <clears throat> excuse me, if it's something mechanical. So I think this makes intuitive sense to people. So for example, had you come to me and you said, hey, uh, you know, I dislocated my shoulder seven times. And uh, can you just put an injection in there? Well, the the problem with that is that the in, in that case, in this example... The ligaments of the shoulder have been stretched and disrupted. And in the case of a dislocation, there's oftentimes a, a labral tear that comes with that. Now, I don't believe, and I could be proven wrong over time, but I just don't believe that, that an injection on its own would magically decrease the volume of the capsule, you know, tighten the static structures in the shoulder, and resolve the pain for that patient. Now, but let those me stop people you. Can I pause be, you right there while yeah, I was still sure. this in my head? Sure. I believe there was something that came up a few years ago where they were doing something where they were heating up the inside oh, sure. of the capsule and yeah. shrinking Thermal capsulorophy. What is that? It was very popular. For, was. You said was. it was. Yeah. Now oh. it's close to malpractice. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So it's interesting the, the way these things go. So there was a huge <clears throat> wave of... Um, interest in this and essentially what guys would do is they're looking inside the shoulder you have a radio frequency wand and you're using that to heat the tissue and you can watch it literally shrink in front of you <clears throat> then uh richard hawkins is a very accomplished orthopedic surgeon kind of iconic guy that's done tons of research he was also went in uh, vale colorado now in uh, carolina and he published a paper that that showed a very high rate of failure from these procedures and so as a result of that, um, it's fallen out of favor. So, huh? It, but it was done very frequently on lots N and lots of shoulders. Now, high rate of failure. It was like 40%. 
Okay, but here's the question. Is yeah. that because you're, t- you're talking about already compromised joints, right, which is a very complicated joint? The, the, uh, the, the shoulder's a very complicated so, joint. There's certainly a number of reasons why that could have failed, but uh, there was a lot of problems with uh, basically damage to the tissue from the radiofrequency. Oh, wound. so it was yeah. weakening things. Yeah. Uh, I see. Yeah, so that, that well, went away. What was away. the benefit now, of it? Well, you could watch it, and you were seeing the decrease in the volume of the capsule. So you were hmm. where structures had become loose, you were seeing it become tight in, at the time zero period. What about doing that in conjunction with some sort of a stem cell therapy? Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I mean, should be a doctor, right? You're very close. <laughs> you know, you're, you're only... Uh, Ten years in school. You're only, you're only fourteen years away. <laughs> fourteen. Yeah, that's all. Fourteen for regular people. Give me twenty. Yeah. Um, so, so why did they think that it would work in the first place? Like, what what was the uh, the idea behind? Well, it? Like there, how it, there's there's early published papers that were saying that the outcomes were better if you used it. Wow. So it's it's murky. I mean, there's things that over time we discover that what we thought we were looking at, you know, we didn't fully understand. And how long did it take before it became malpractice or uh, it's, problematic? That's an exaggerated term. But, problematic. Um, I, I don't know the exact year that his paper was published, but it was um, it was before my residency training. I started. Uh-huh. I graduated medical school in 2006. So it was before that that people weren't doing that anymore. Okay, so I'll bring you back around. So when someone has had, like if you talked to some dude who played football or something, had multiple shoulder dislocations, like what would you do to him? You would encourage surgery? Um, so the, you know, the typical um, course for recurrent instability of the shoulder would be a stabilization procedure. Now, a lot of that's based on <clears throat> the exam and what you see on imaging. Some people can do well with a simple shoulder arthroscopy and then you pass a couple stitches you repair the labrum you can tighten the capsule at the same time and young patients progress really well through that hmm. um, when there is you know more complicated problems such as the there's bone loss on the front of the socket so when you have a dislocation the head goes forward it it goes out the front that's the typical an anterior shoulder dislocation is the usual one and then as it tries to come back into place the head bangs into the glenoid or the socket so you can you'll tear the front of the labrum you'll stretch the front of the capsule but then you can also get a dent in the back of the humeral head so <clears throat> what now, is the correct procedure i mean I, I keep throwing you off track but when someone does have a shoulder dislocation what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to pull on it or just take them to the hospital? Um, there's probably no harm in doing that. There's there's a great technique called the Zahiri technique. Spell it? Z-A-H-I-R-I. And that's just the name of the guy that wrote the paper. Um, but it's essentially, it would be a really th- easy thing for you to learn because it's kind of a leverage thing. Just, like jujitsu. You know, yeah. So it's a way to um, leverage the the arm so that you can get the muscles to relax. It's easy on the person and you can actually do it awake and like at the field. So I actually did it on a, uh, uh, professional steer wrestler, um, at the rodeo. How hilarious is it that you can be a professional steer wrestler? <laughs> like, well, yes. I was amateur for a few years, but yeah, no, they're, 
they're they're pretty serious about stuff. Super serious. So you were talking about your uh, bucket handle meniscus. Mm. The first rodeo cowboy that I took care of had a flipped bucket handle meniscus tear, and he came in the the day that the national finals rodeo was starting. And he was also a steer wrestler, by the way, and had been a previous. I think he was a champ, or he he won a bunch. That's for sure. Um, so they basically they taped his knee. You got to come closer. They taped his knee. Yeah. In about 30 degrees of flexion. And he competed the whole nine days. Whoa. Just yeah. roped up knee. Just taped it up, got on his horse, and was jumping off and throwing 600-pound steers Jesus on the ground. Christ. Yeah. Those guys are crazy. I watch but that stuff on TV. I've yeah. never even been to one live because I'm terrified. You need to come to I it. I don't. We did an episode of Fear Factor. We made people ride bulls. Made him ride it. That's ride terrifying. Him. That's you can die. I mean, that's not. You can die no matter what. You're dealing with a goddamn steer. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. You can die getting on yeah, top. But a of one steer of those. is not a bull. Right? No, a steer oh, has been steer? gelded. Right? No, no, no. no. We well, had bulls. No, no, no. no. So, steer wrestling is different, right? Steer wrestling is the they, they grab them. They take off the, yeah, you the steer them. and the guy and the horse take off at the same time. You jump off. You grab it. You grab it by the horns and turn its neck and throw it on the ground. And then they wrap the yeah. See, a steer is a bull that doesn't have any balls. Right. Yeah. That bull's not but they're the same also, animal. They're younger than the right. ones that... They, cop their, they chop their balls off before they get a chance to mature. That's why when they... they the bulls they, are terrifying. So yeah. I've been right down next to the bucking chute, and it's, like, Ugh. frightening. I actually had a clot of dirt get... One of them kicked it up, and it hit me in the head like a baseball. I mean, yeah. it See, was they're, they're little babies, Yeah, and they have no balls. So this guy jumps off. What a... And you Dumb. turn the head. That is so whack. What a <laughs> stupid fucking thing to be excited about. These I are... did it. I wrestled that thing that I was trying to get away, <laughs> grab him by his natural handles, and I took him down. Look how quick. Look at their move. It's like a Darce choke. And the cow's like, what in the fuck, man? <laughs> Why is this even happening? Look, the cow's like, what is going on? I got to get out of here. Look how they, they always do it the same way, too. They do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's similar it's to like a, a choke hold. Yeah. Oh, what a dumb fucking thing to be excited about! These, they well, grab the neck and flip them on their you back. Yeah, it's not. It's outside of your world, but I'll tell it's you that these are some world. of the these are some of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life, honestly. And they're some of the toughest athletes in the oh, world. Oh yeah, I would imagine those yeah. guys are tough as hell. You have to be. They, we had a dude on Fear They Factor. compete through every injury. We there is a, no injury that they don't that they won't compete. You have it's to. Nuts. You're always broken up. I yeah. mean, you have to. We had and, a dude on Fear Factor they, that had nine. You know, they don't make money if they're not competing. So. Right. We had a dude on Fear Factor was a steer champion, or a rodeo champion, rather. He had nine shoulder surgeries. His shoulder was just, like, sliced all open. Yeah. And, he, and I go, how long often is it dislocated? He goes, Every any day. time. Yeah. Like, I could open up a car door, it'll pop out of socket. I'm like, yikes. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Um, so, back around to where we were at. What, um, what do you do? How does the Zaheer technique, can you de- de- describe it? Did I say it right? Zahiri? Zahiri, yeah. Zahiri technique? So the one of the guys that uh, we trained with uh, in our my sports medicine program in Alabama showed us this, and um, it was like one of the first things that we reviewed at the beginning of the year. And uh, so basically you have the person lying flat on their back, and I would hold your wrist, and then I loop my arm under your arm, and then grab onto mine for for leverage, mm-hmm. and then I literally just 
sort of lean back mm-hmm. and I'm using the muscles in my back. So I'm not pulling with my arms. So right. a small person can do this on a very big athlete mm. and you're fine because you're, you're using all of the strongest muscles in your body. Right. So you literally just lean back and you hold traction in that position. So you've got the arm is positioned like this. You, you got to describe to people that are listening. Uh, the arm is in front of the person uh, while they're lay- lying on their back. And again, I have my right hand on your right wrist if it's a right shoulder dislocation. Uh-huh. Well, let's just see a video. You got a, you got a video of it? Uh, it's really hard to find it, but I'm going to hopefully guess that this is maybe it. That's hopefully. it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's okay. It. Let me explain to people at home. What this is like is if you were trying to give someone an arm bar, you, it's, you get a hook on the left side. And so the hook is uh, your left. If you're trying to arm bar someone on the right their right arm, and you were in side control, you would hook it with your left arm, and then you would trap it in place. And what a person does when they don't want to get arm barred, their defense is this. They grab their hands together. Uh-huh. And so you loop your arm in yeah. that and pull it back like that. So that would be real similar yeah. to what you're doing. You're using the left arm. You're con- connecting it like this. And then you're, you're actually just using traction. Yeah. So the, the treater, in this case, on the right side... Mm-hmm. He's just going to lean back and hold, and mm. you just wait. And in about 10 seconds, it pops in place. The, the deltoid and the pec and the biceps relax, and it just slides in. Oh, that's interesting. So you can actually do that. And I mean, the kinder way to do this is, you know, with some anesthesia. Right. But a lot of times you can do that, and it, they're perfectly comfortable. Huh. And they're immediately better when the shoulder's back in. <sighs> wow. Well, they're not completely better but the pain's relieved from the initial event now you told me when you looked at my mri that you think that my shoulder was dis- dislocated at some point in time i don't remember exactly your mri but mm. if you had a tear of the front of the labrum if you had and you had that any evidence of that little dent in the back of the humeral head then then that would be consistent with that injury i just do not remember ever having a dislocated shoulder but i've had i've been kimura you've had a bunch of times i bet you've had it slip Maybe. A little bit. Well, when you just the nature of your shoulder sport. locked, you yeah. know, there's been a many Americanas in my past and Kimuras <laughs> and all these different like hardcore. You know, the thing you is, you were on before, the receiving end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Before um, this injury, I never did. Americana. You could definitely have at least a subluxation of the shoulder for sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. And you fight it off too because you don't want it to happen, so you're resisting and. Um, before this injury, I didn't do any shoulder exercises. I just worked out. Hmm. But I didn't do any specific exercises just to strengthen my shoulders. And I yeah. think that was a big mistake. And I, I kind of emphasize that with people. Like doing uh, external and internal rotation mm-hmm. um, exercises. Doing like um, – I'm a big fan now of uh, inverted kettlebell presses. and Yeah, that's yeah. One, been one of my uh, Giant, right? more favorite lately. Huge. It's definitely a challenge. You don't need much weight. And uh, yeah, this little forty-pound Iron Man kettlebell. I use this one. It's amazing. Yeah, just that's a lot that of weight sucker. for that exercise. That's pretty good. Well, it's just uh, they say you should be able to do fifty percent of your max weight, or okay. is it fifty percent or ninety percent? I forget what they say. Forget me. Don't listen to me. Well, it, it and it, it <laughs> depends on. I think I said ninety. Yeah. Obviously, in the in the injured patient or the person that's recovering, right. they're going to be starting with much lower, much loads. lower, much and lower. And all but the focus is on your the motion, 
your your posture, engaging your core, keeping your ribs down, and and having the full motion. The strong first protocol. I think what they're trying to say is, uh, in order to have really powerful shoulders, you should be able to do ninety percent of your max kettlebell press. Like, say, if you can max kettle press ninety pounds. Now that's with the with the handle and down. The, the belt down, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. With max, that would be your max. Like what? Like you a would, one rep max? Yes. Okay. Or you know what you would pretty much maybe you could do two or three if you really had to but right. you know you're talking about yeah, a lot yeah, of weight yeah, yeah. um you know what you would n- normally like max out it like there's um there's a protocol that this guy pavel tatsulin follows that's really kind of yeah. interesting in you know pavel right well he's the kettlebell guy right he's the guy that brought him they call him the godfather of kettlebells yeah. in america but um yeah. the, the guy I, that i train with talks about that all the time yeah the the idea behind it is um don't do your the like if you could do 10 reps you do five and you you wait a long time and then you do another five and you wait a long time and then you do another five and you never work to failure and that working to failure is actually not healthy it's not smart and you don't really well, get stronger that way which my you do recommendation is, is that for and 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 this is coming from not this isn't from the orthopedic surgery world this is what i've read from strength and conditioning people the thing you want to avoid in doing something to failure is with load and a skill activity. Right. So, for example, like a clean uh, or, you know, a snatch or something Things like that. Things that involve coordination yeah. and where you have to if time it, if everything. If it requires, you know, sound mechanics right. and you're doing it with load, it's bad to do that to failure because what happens as you fatigue is your mechanics are going to break down. Right. And that's where you're going to get hurt. Well, what Pavel talks about is that strength is a skill and that all these different things For sure. think of them as a skill and then don't do things to failure and if you're looking for, you know, endurance or something along those yeah. lines, you want to do light weights and you do want to do multiple repetitions. It's not what you're doing when you're trying to get stronger. No. Yeah. So it's there's but there's, you know, a lot of different arguments one way or another. I mean, talk to powerlifters and they're like that guy's a pussy, you got to do it to failure. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Talk to the CrossFit people. They want to do 100 reps, you know? Yeah. So, no, there there are activities that you can train to failure, and there's no risk. So, for example, like like pull-ups. I mean, when you fail, you just you just can't get up, right? right. Like, you're just going to come off the bar. Right. The battle ropes, you're just going to fatigue out. Like, there is you, – you're not going to hurt yourself Right, but they it. even believe that when you're doing chin-ups, like if you're doing pull-ups or chin-ups – um, that when you're doing it, you shouldn't go to failure. You should just stop like close to it or halfway there mm. and then take a long time off and then do another five reps. Like say if your, your max is 10 reps, get to five, stop, take a break, do another five, stop, take another five, 10 minutes, do another five, keep going. And just you're, you're working on form and your muscles are performing these actions in a, a very clean, smooth delivery, and right. that this is the best way to recover or to build strength, and that you just do it more often. Don't do it to failure once a week and then be a wreck for like three or four days afterwards, because you know that feeling when you when you lift weights and you lift weights for a week, or you lift weights and you, you lift weights to failure, rather, and you're sore for so long. You right. can't get anything done. This idea is you do more frequent workouts and you don't go to failure. Well, and that don't go over five reps. I, I think one of the biggest uh, th- mistakes that we see and reasons that people show up in my office it 
is because of overload mm -hmm. and, and, you know, no time for recovery right. from the training that you're doing. So you don't see people periodizing and incorporating the times when they're just allowing rest. I mean, you can't be working at max capacity all the time. Right, exactly. So It's a know, big thing with fighters. Huge. Yeah. Keeping them so, from working hard is so hard to do. Yeah, so I always I try to emphasize with, and, and we have to really talk about this with our ACL rehab, um, because that's a group that, you know, they're so eager to get back, you know, if they're a competitive athlete, that, you know, you got to remind them that, look, we have steps to go through. And I always say, you got to work smart, not hard. Like, right. you know, we have a plan and there's a reason why this week may not be a whole lot of work. I mean, your body needs rest and recovery in order to put stress on it again so that we can continue to make your progress. Otherwise, at some point, you're either going to plateau, you're not going to be making changes, you're going to get frustrated, or you're just going to get hurt. Right. All right, we got to bring this home. So anything else we need to uh, cover on this? I don't think so. I think we got we got to talk about quite a bit. Yeah, we really did. Thank yeah. you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it because right. this is we've always had these really cool conversations when I visit you in your office, and I'm, I'm really glad we got a chance to do this. Now, if people want to get a hold of you and they want to seek treatment, please give them... Uh, necessary information. Oh, sure. So uh, our website is www.totalsportsmedicine.com. I like and how people still say www. Like, yeah, like you probably that, still get there, right? Yeah, you can just totalsportsmedicine.com. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we have information on there in terms of how to contact us. And, uh, you know, we'd be happy to get additional information to patients if they have questions. Awesome. Well, yeah. uh, again, thanks for everything you've done for me. It's been a lifesaver. And uh, I've had Thank you very much for benefit. Uh, allowing me to come down. My pleasure, it. brother. Thank you. Dr. Roddy McGee, ladies and gentlemen. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the podcast. Thanks to Caveman Coffee for hooking, up with, hooking us up with some um, sweet and delicious coffee. CavemanCoffeeCO.com. Uh, use the code word ROGAN. You'll save 10%. Thank you to Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Go to Quicket Loans. Quicken. Q-U-I-C-K-E-N. Quicken for me, the marble mouth fuck. QuickenLoans.com forward slash ROGAN. That's quickenloans.com forward slash Rogan. Thank you also to stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. You don't have to. Go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in J-R-E. And they will hook you up with a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. And thank you to Lyft. You can drive for Lyft and make yourself some motherfucking money. Go to lyft.com forward slash Rogan. That's lyft.com forward slash Rogan. And every week, thank you to Onnit. Go to O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word Rogan and save 10% off any and all supplements. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Woo! We got a hell of a week next week. A lot of good guests. Um, I'll tell you one, Dennis McKenna, psychedelic royalty. He'll be here on Monday, and we got more. Some one of them I don't even want to talk about until we have them. Shh, keep it down. No people, the, the, the walls have ears. All right. Um, thank you, everybody. Appreciate the fuck out of you, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Mwah. <laughs>